You are hearing Alpha Bunga Bunga. You know, this isn't too esoteric. We're just going to shoot some times. No, I think we've got some I think we've got a good time. I think we've got a good time. You are hearing Alpha Bunga Bunga. This is episode 5, in which we try to leave behind the strange, chaotic interregnum of our times, and instead, we'll try to predict the future via internet memes. It's fully automated luxury gay space communism. But before we get onto that fibrous subject, let's find out who we is. Phil, introduce yourself. Tell me something new. Alright, I'm Philip Cunliffe. I'm tweet at the Philippics, and something you didn't know about me is that... I always have my um, bag of my travel bag for toiletries. I always use it all the time. It's always there. It's always ready. (laughs) I don't know if I cared to know Uh, that. Oh my god, that was underwhelming. George, you you didn't know it, right? Now you do know it. That's what you wanted. Now you do know something personal about me, which is you know it's quite important in my life. I always have like a travel bag of my toiletries always available there for me to use. I just think and, you smell you know, of like old leather and cheap cologne now. Like that's the image that that projects. That's you a great know, image. You know yeah. I don't smell. You know me too well. You know that I don't smell like that. Let's move on. George, what about you? Uh, well, I don't know if I can follow that. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm George. I tweet at Polwek with a, with a Q. And something that, that you might not know about me, Alex, is that I'm here eating a pizza and, and podcasting on a Friday night. So I'm clearly a very cool individual. I don't really have a, a, a travel bag of toiletries ready, but I'm sure I could do if necessary. That's good. Now our listeners will also know how long it takes us to turn around an episode after actually recording it. <laughs> so now we've got to be quick. Um, they won't know which Friday. They will think this, this is Friday hence, not Friday now. So Right. This is coming to you from the future. This is next Friday. So whatever Friday is ahead of you, that's that's where we are. Uh, the communist future. Exactly. Um, I'm, uh, I should introduce myself. I'm Alex Oakley and I tweet at, at Alex double underscore 1789. Um, so anyway, George, what's been on your mind this week? Hmm, a good question. So, so just eating a bit of pizza there. Um, so I guess what's been on my mind this week is essentially the, the tone and consequences of the sorts of political arguments that I've been having in the past year and people that I know have been. Because um, I found that they've been way more and way more personal, way more consequential um, than they have been in the, in the past few years. For example, I know a couple of people whose families have had a, I'm not speaking to him, I'm not speaking to her as a result of Brexit. And I've had people, I've had more people shouting at me than normal about politics. And so, okay, I just want to throw this out to the out to you guys. So my, th- my idea is that our generation was raised in basically a neoliberal period of technocratic government where political arguments were, here's my evidence, here's your evidence, whoever has the better evidence wins. And it depoliticizes conflict. So now we're getting to this stage where politics matters. It's interesting. And we don't really know how to have arguments without having major fallouts with people. So what, what do you guys think? Is this, a, is this a plausible thesis? Is this a description of the, the various fallouts that you've had with friends and family over Brexit, over Trump, over the politics of the last kind of 18 months? Right. I mean, I, my context is a bit different because I've been in Brazil over the, the past period. And there's been such an intense polarization here that 
literally walking around the streets around this time last year and there's this mutual suspicion of like are you on the left are you on the right what side are you on so it's been very intense in that way but i think across the kind of the western world it's probably been sort of similar albeit like has necessary it has different causes in different places but also had you know just much more bitter uh bitter arguments and you end up thinking that as you said it's just people not being able to not being used to to accustomed to having kind of sensible political discussions. And you see this on on TV programming as well, like news programming. The sort of really bitter uh, animosities in, in terms of the actual like ideological content of the argument um, being played out, but with a, a high level of civility, which just doesn't seem to happen today. But when people, but in, surely in Brazil, when people engage with you, they, you know, they see that you're white and that you have an Irish accent, so they assume you're on the right, right? <laughs> That's right. And I've got a shaved head, so I could even be a fascist. Who even knows? Are you a fascist? Just to clarify for listeners. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of kind of early 20th century futurism, but I think that's as close as I get. That makes you suspicious in our eyes. Well, there we go. Phil, what have you been thinking about? So I've been thinking about something slightly more specific, which is I read this piece in The Guardian um, about a week ago now by a professor at the Hebrew University, I believe, called in Israel called Yuval Hariri. This article in The Guardian is talking about the consequences. He's a big dude. He's like a big dude. He's written like major works about um um, the history of humanity coming from, you know, before we were properly human right through to the present. And his most recent work is looking at the consequences of artificial intelligence, virtual reality, um, automation, and how these things will, what they will, how they will impact our humanity. And so his thing is like, well, you know, in principle, it should like free us from work and that we have a model in Israel because in Israel, one of the things he talks about is that you have um, Hasidic, Hasidic Jews who are effectively subsidized by the state or orthodox kind of uh, very conservative fundamentalist orthodox Jews who are subsidized by the state um, to do their thing, which means that the men are engaged <laughs> in. So, well, the thing is, so the men are engaged in kind of serious systematic study. The women work kind of to support them, but, you know, fairly low level stuff. Um, and that this is potentially a model for automation so that we should all receive a universal basic income. The state should subsidize us and then we go do our thing. Um, and that these apparently the, the fundamentalist Jews in Israel who participate in the system, they report higher levels of life satisfaction. So the guys who like spend all their lives, they, their wives work but they don't work. They get subsidized by the state and they spend their whole life. Right, well, hang on, hang on. So, so, so you basically, you get paid, you get to read books all day. Someone else yeah. works for you and the state gives you money. This just sounds like capitalism today. <laughs> well, um, that's not where he goes with it. So he says, you know, this sounds like something that could be potentially uh, the future, right? So he says, because these because these people who do this report higher levels of life satisfaction than other demographics within Israeli society, that we shouldn't be worried about the fact that we might have, say, low income and a relatively low but heavily subsidized standard of living in which we devote to our own person. I mean, these guys spend their whole time, like, you know, reading the Torah, the Talmud, whatever, and studying it and debating it 
discussing it, thinking about it, and that this would be like a viable model. It was so deeply infuriating to me. This is just sounds like a really disappointing utopia. Like, I mean, if you're sketching yeah, well, out a future society, you're like, I mean, you could you could reach for something a little bit grander than that, right? Exactly. You took the words out of my mouth because, like, how could that? The benefits of automation and artificial intelligence and virtual reality and the model that you come up with is like um, religious fanatics whose wives um, support them, who are heavily subsidized by the state, engaging in the most kind of esoteric and weird and messed up kind of um, obscure theological yeah. debates and that is the model for the future of so, humanity i mean, I mean that's I, your I, thing, I read this I, I read this article and, and and george coming to you like he makes a big point in this article about saying that people can just sit and play video games or invest in other forms of games what even real life games invest meaning in in them and so even though you might be idle and not have any real productive activity which contributes to society you can be kept busy in a meaningful way, just by playing video games. How's that for the future? Yeah, I think it seems to me like it. <clears throat> it's basically an, an academic's utopia where you have somebody who does all your domestic labor and you're free to engage in either reading or something which is, is just a, a game, ideally at a high intellectual level. But it's quite, I don't know, I, I read this piece that Phil, that Phil circulated and it's, it's just so disappointing that this is this is the vision of the future that we have that basically automate women out of it so that the men can be there to um, to engage in their in their highbrow either gaming or or, or academic pursuits. So I've got the so, thing about this, right? There's this seems like a kind of middle road of the automated future. So you've got like one one idea which is with automation there's gonna be a huge surplus population who are gonna be on the outside of the gates looking in um, this is going to be the children of men scenario where you have a wealthy elite who so, uh, eats up most of the social product themselves and the rest are left with nothing and are totally useless. That's like the that's the nasty version. Then you have the really utopian version where the benefits of automation are shared out equally. It's an egalitarian society with a lot of leisure time, which we'll come to discussing in a second. This just sounds like a middle road where it's like, well, you're not you're not starving. It's not kind of Mad Max uh, future capitalism. But it's also kind of unsatisfying as a as a idea of utopia. It's a kind of making do. Well, it's not, but it's not utopian, right? So I mean, it's um, it's trying to find kind of precedence in our current society for taking the benefits of a highly automated, productive, and wealthy society. And it's so, I mean, you know, if that's your thing, if you get off on like reading obscure theology and you want to be left alone to do it. You know, fine, whatever. I think. I mean, who's gonna? You know, who should stop you? But right. the and idea that it's like a model for like what we should aspire to as human beings is what's so profoundly depressing. So to to let's move on to to something a little bit more substantial. We are talking about fully automated luxury communism. Um, let me just spell out what this is for those who aren't aware of it. It emerged about. Th- three years ago as a sort of left-wing utopian slogan. Uh, it sort of projects an image of the future which is technologically enabled, uh, very high-tech, egalitarian, and cornucopian. It's sort of a, a life of plenty for all with a lot of leisure time. Uh, but 
as a slogan, it seems to be more of a phenomenon of the internet left than, than a serious philosophical preposition or proposition even. But there's a question mark over that. Um, in recent times, it's had another internet sort of left meme, that of space communism, collapsed into it to become, and deep breath, fully automated luxury gay space communism. What it actually aims at, though, in a more substantial way, is sort of a different vision of the future, one which seems a little bit more fulfilling than sitting and reading the Torah all day. So just let me give you a couple of examples from Twitter, because that's where this stuff happens. Um, fully automated luxury communism might be accompanied by videos of some high-tech uh, invention, such as the, that you know, that do you see that robot that automatically is able to perform microsurgery? And so there's an example of it peeling the grape. Do you guys see this? Uh, why do you need to peel a grape? But no, I didn't see this. Well, this is this is the future. You can have your grapes already peeled for you. Um, so another example, um, someone called Eco Shenanigans tweeted, under fully automated luxury communism, there would be pizzas for everyone according to their own dietary restrictions, and we could just nap and not have to work after. I think maybe Marx might have put it a bit more elegantly, but that's cool. I'm on board with that. Um, someone else called Set Notes makes reference to it also by saying, unless we can wrestle technological innovation and knowledge production from capital, in my honest opinion, the prospects for fully automated luxury communism look limited at present. But you also get sort of a, the counterposition to this is sort of more mundane concerns. So you get some prototype 27 saying, in the absence of fully automated luxury gay space communism, the need to pay bills isn't going to go away. And finally, you've got at MTSW saying, Living in our current dystopia, Star Trek-style fully automated luxury space communism would be a well-timed escapism. Uh, so maybe it's not a projection of a future society, but just a sort of escapism. There's also sillier variants of this. So you've got the Facebook page Yacht Communism. I don't know if you guys follow this. It posts images approvingly of, of luxury, especially when it's acquired through criminal means or just through pure laziness. And it's even better if it's got a hammer and sickle on it. That's yacht communism. So one example is a post of a gold Rolex with a hammer and sickle on the face, accompanied by the comment, all I want for Christmas is hashtag full communism, but they're on the Rolex too, Santa. Again, I'm on board of that. That all sounds good. Um, the same page, just to give another example, tweeted approvingly of an article in Current Affairs, which is actually a pretty good article, I thought, which was called For a Luxury Leftism, which says, if socialism isn't about giving people nice things and good times, what on earth is it about? So far, so good. The guy who really propagated this idea, though, is Aaron Bastani and the Indian media collective around him, Navarra Media. He put it thusly, robots and computers doing the hard graft could mean respite from the overworked fatigue that's hijacked our world. You looked after your nan a lot more, spend more time in bed with your partner, and ride a driverless Tesla motorcycle while listening to music that you don't have to pay for and has no adverts. This is the political adventure of our lifetime. I call it fully automated luxury communism. Cartier for everyone, Mont Blanc for the masses, Chloe for all. So what's going on here? I mean, to me, this looks like a positive development. It looks like something which is a move away from more austere ideas of socialism, particularly that which has dominated laborism, as well as a lot of green thinking since the 1960s. But is it just a meme? Is it just an empty slogan? Is it the idle fantasies of the internet left? Um, or does it have some substantial content to it, which should maybe be inspiration for all of us? So, George, I guess. Yeah, I think my starting point is that <clears throat> this comes from a really a positive place in that it's an attempt to reclaim the future for the left. And that's what the left should have, ultimately, is a vision of the future which is exciting, which is sexy, which 
counterposes to what the right has, which is just the past and the way things were. And that's dreary. And we all know that's pretty shit. Um, and I think that's that's why, you know, despite its, its, its perhaps limitations, and I'm sure we will talk about them. And I know Phil is involved in the conversation, so we will have a negative slant <laughs> to at least some parts of the conversation. Um, but yeah, the, the, the revolution can't take its poetry from the past, but only from the future, as Mark said. And I think that's that's my that's my starting point. Just to put it out there that I I have you know I have I support Aaron Bastani and and Navarra Media at the core. I mean, yeah, Phil. That that's the question: is is the <laughs> is the internet left? Is the is a tumbler of uh, of space communist memes the poetry of the future? No, it's definitely not, because it's like camp and self aware and ironic and self criticizing, and it's the it's all so um, so overwrought and self-conscious that nobody can take it seriously. Um, and I mean, it's worth bearing in mind. So I mean, it's true that the left became kind of preoccupied with um, small things, with backward-looking visions, with um, appropriate kind of limited visions of what technology and development and everything would look like. And the most utopia, you know, the mo the furthest that utopia could go would be like living on like a fucking, you know, kind of organic farm in some isolated kind of place remote from civilization where you recycle your own piss and shit and kind of grow your own carrots. And, you know, that's the height of what kind of um, a uh, future society could look like. So, I mean, it's a step forward from that. But it's worth bearing in mind just how far, how many steps back that vision already was. So the fully automated luxury space communism and Aaron Bastani that George is, the sexy Aaron Bastani that George is like so attracted to on his Tumblr, um, is worth bearing in mind, right? That like um, it's not any much further than the Soviet Union in, say, the 60s, right? So the Soviets were totally on board with this vision of, say, advancing into space colonies, colonizing the moon and Mars, orbiting space stations. They were all around building um, high-tech, industrialized, super modern, futuristic society of tremendous kind of excitement, abundance, leisure. Right. This is all this is red plenty. But then yeah, this, but then this recenters this recenters the left. Then this is the the starting point, well, and so we should be welcoming. No, recenters the left around the Soviet Union circa 1960. That's what I'm saying. It is no forward-looking vision. Bill argues that this is basically retro futurism. I mean, that's what you're getting at. I mean, is that fair, George? Yeah, I can I can see where Phil's coming from to a certain extent because there was a, I think there was a, there was a kind of a left accelerationist moment in the UK the inventing the future book by um, Williams and Cernicek there was a brief kind of corbo futurist uh, let's make the whole of the UK a wi-fi hotspot idea but it never you know I, I think it I don't think it really lived up to people's um, expectations you know the feeling that life has got so much faster and the possibilities are so much wider at least they should be in our imagination than the 60s Soviet possibilities of basically having a bit of automation compared to what we're doing now that this <clears throat> this space of the future has been taken over by consumerist technologies and i think i think phil has a has a has a correct provo 
provocation in one sense, which is why isn't often this fully automated luxury communism a bit more futuristic? It's a bit, it's, it's still a bit. So if you ever read any of these, any sci-fi novels in from the 50s and 60s, they still have a, a lot of the same ideas of today, but just with a bit more technology. So yeah, I think I think I think that's that's my point that this this Corbo futurist moment in the UK, maybe that's past and maybe it didn't leave with it a really lasting sense of what this fully automated luxury communism could look like in more, a bit more detail. Yeah, I mean I guess there's a point that okay, we take the point that it challenges what actually Williams and Cernicek call the folk left, um, which popularly held ideas on the left, which tend to be effectively conservative, small scale, and all the rest is Phil uh, elaborate on. I think what makes it a bit different is that it tries to engage with certain tendencies within capitalism, which point to the future and tries to imagine seizing that and taking and derailing it, as it were, into an alternative future. So in that sense, I think it's very much of the present because it engages with current trends in automation. Um, and I think that poses a question because if fully automated luxury communism is merely something that is desirable, you could just put that down to these are just some people on the internet who have these utopian ideas which are actually kind of retrofuturist and whatever. But if you actually see it as a sort of necessity that automation is going to proceed in such a way that there will be wide-scale technological unemployment, then this becomes a sort of necessity. This becomes a humanist imperative uh, to avoid the sort of Mad Max barbarism, which is the alternative future. Uh, so in that sense, it's something very much of the present. Um, Phil, I mean, does that not sort of ground it in, in contemporary concerns and isn't just, a, a re you know, whatever it's retro-futurist aesthetic, doesn't it actually try to take things forward in engaging with the contradictions of our society today? Nah. I'm not, con nah. not convinced. Um, so <laughs> you didn't right, say so anything these, else to say nah. <laughs> well, so next. these guys, these <laughs> next, these guys claim to be like you know kind of left wing communist socialist whatever. But um, but so let's then let's think about it, right? So let's think about it kind of in a brutally kind of um, analytical sociological way. Whose interest do this does these memes and this kind of social media fashion? Who's ideological political outlook does it most closely resemble who does it represent and it can only surely in that kind of brutal sociological terms who does it represent fully automated luxury communism this um all these camp sobriquets added to the idea of communism who does it represent it represents hipsters right it's not fully automated luxury communism it's fully automated luxury hipsterism so i can sit in my cafe in dalston and I can be on social media talking about, like, you know, why g -Jack and Butler and I disagree with this person and bang on Facebook. And I, you know, like, I don't really have a real job, very, un, you know, very poorly paid, but I don't really care that much either. I'm kind of supported by my parents. I have lots of housemates living in some crappy rundown kind of apartment in, I don't know, some kind of outskirts of like East London, whatever. Uh, let me argue back against this because I think the you could just as well argue that that sort of hipster idea and the sociological aspects that you draw attention to are precisely what is behind the sort of alternative green ideas of the future, which tend to be, again, those of the folk left, small scale, uh, tending to your allotment, not really aspiring to very much and not really having any grand technological vision of the future. This is precisely the opposite. And I think it probably speaks 
to put this to you again, that it actually speaks to the precariat who sense that a lot of their labor might be useless and that they have a lot of spare time. So might as well just actually have, for example, a universal basic income where you can find yourself being actually more productive than you are now rather than chasing after small bits of jobs here and there. Now, it's the anti it's the anti hipster wing of hipsterism. It's entirely <laughs> internal. It's entirely internal to the hipsterist movement. There is nothing about it that represents any kind of um, positive social force for change. Um, it's just a fantasy. It's an idea. And I don't even think like the idea that um, mass technology, I mean, obviously, so this is waiting to be seen, whether or not um, there will be a significant rise in unemployment or a significant uh, decline, say, in labor force participation as a result of technological change and automation. I don't think that change is going to be that great. Capitalism will be able to generate and recreate a whole new series of um, uh, low kind of low wage or kind of mediocre wage service sector jobs in this new economy, and wage the wage labor form of social control and social domination will be recreated because that's the way in which it's simply the way in which the social system operates. So the idea that technology is going to emancipate us into this kind of um, automated future in which we have lots of unemployed hipsters, which we have to decide what we're going to do with them, is just fantasy. It's total fantasy. It's the, I mean, you know, hipsters obviously can, hipsters are obviously, they feel the fact of their redundancy and therefore they generate these um, utopian ideas of fully automated luxury hipsterism. But I mean, it's no kind of progressive vision. It's like I say, it's not even as kind of as exciting as what the grayest kind of most dead-eyed Stalinist bureaucrat could imagine from the 1960s. So I think there's a thing which is they, there's a different tendencies within this. I mean, one side really just one-sidedly seeks leisure at the expense of work and maintains the division which capitalism creates between work and leisure. But I think there's an, another way of imagining this, which is genuinely utopian in transcending that dichotomy between work and leisure, and which might, for example, maintain a, a sort of different sort of work ethic, not the Protestant work ethic, but one which seeks to build a new society, a sort of humanist work ethic. Uh, and in that sense, I think fully automated luxury communism, if you just keep repeating that as a sort of an idea that you hold on to, I don't think that's too bad a thing. I have this interpretation that what it actually functions as is more of a mantra than it is a silly meme, uh, a kind of camp aesthetic, or a sort of hipster's desire. I think it works as something similar to what people kind of jokingly also do on Twitter, which is communism will win. You've seen those memes where someone's whispering something into someone's ear. Um, you know, tell me something that'll make me shudder. Communism will win. It's sort of that sort of thing that you just repeat it over and over and which maybe seems a sort of empty an empty sort of slogan that you repeat to yourself. But there's a reason that those specific words are chosen. chosen. And I think that it at least inscribes within a certain section of lefty intelligentsia a very modernist and future-orientated idea which wasn't there in the past. In that regard, I'm kind of all right with it. Um, George, any, any final thoughts on, on fully automated luxury, communism, gay, space, or otherwise? Um, yeah, so I think just to pick up on something that Phil said, yeah, there is perhaps a an element to which this is the hipster's recognition of the 
redundancy of their jobs and i would possibly include myself in this to a certain extent that there's a there's a willingness to automate certain forms of, of semi-creative labor um which is not necessarily a bad thing it's it's a recognition that life is getting faster technology is getting more intelligent there are things which previously were not in the purview of automation which possibly now could be and that would change many people's um entire lives entire relationship to work um but it's a bit to, to answer your question more directly alex the, so m maybe then the way to assess fully automated luxury communism is almost as a slogan and there's a there's a ferraris for all slogan which it kind of makes me think of sometimes and i think it is it is directed towards possibly the creative class and and you you know you can put that in as many inverted commas as you like but there is something about i think that that's why i think it's a good it, you know even if it's not perfect it's a good thing that the left is oriented towards abundance again yeah because it's not always yeah and, it, and it's and it's orientated towards uh, towards a surplus and like an, an excess and a luxury and it's for everybody rather than let's decrease let's reduce re let's reuse let's recycle and that's not the most original point but it's something that i think that's ultimately why you know that's in why why i would pay attention to this and think that it's you know it's 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 good ultimately even if it's not perfect yeah and you could i mean there's a there's an argument you can make against what phil is saying which is that the people making these arguments are kind of at the leading edge of things and one could just as well turn around to one could turn around to uh, to naysayers and and boo boys as the tabloids often say uh, like Phil, and say, you know, you'd just be turning around to kind of early 19th century, early 19th century working, industrial working class and their desires and saying, well, you don't, you know, you're just some hipsters. Um, really what matters is what the peasants want, uh, not what the industrial working class wants. You guys are just a bunch of hipsters. You're saying the hipsters are like the industrial proletariat of the 19th century. <laughs> they're just they're just the most they're advanced there. section. They're just the most advanced there. section. There you have like the most kind, you know, there you have uh, the expression of how hipsters view themselves. So this is basically <laughs> you think like you're the vanguard of the future, that you're gonna remake the society into this horrible fucking dystopia of like endless crappy cafes with like <laughs> 10 pound coffees no one said anything beers. about co we were talking the, the, look the examples that i've cited have all been about rolexes and yachts and things like that nothing nothing at all about an overpriced coffee um well i i do want to make a shout out for um ferraris for all because long before aaron bastani started doing his weight loss videos for luxury communism there was <laughs> um there was the world right charity um, the charity yeah. development charity world right that had this line of Ferraris for all and that envisaged development not as like you know um, teaching kind of uh, Ghanaian women how to do basket weaving courses but had a vision of um, industrialized modern super technological development based on economic growth and the harnessing of science and technology for abundance for all and it's worth giving a shout out to them that they got but they had this vision long before it became fashionable. Well, so the thing is, what, what that slogan 
it captures a certain aspiration, but it's completely wrong as a slogan. And future uh, fully automated luxury communism is much better because Ferraris are positional good. If everybody has Ferraris, that doesn't that that takes away the worth. I mean, that means everybody has good, a well-engineered, fast car. But it doesn't mean that Ferrari means what it means anymore. It loses its meaning when it's a it's a good that's available to all. It's like saying everybody let's have running water. You know. Um, well, we should have running water, right? <laughs> are you are you against running water? The fuck are you? Saying? I like it to be static and pooled, and ideally kind of col- choleric and <laughs> you mean like mosquito. Dasani water. Yeah, Dasani. It's like tap water, but more expensive. It's great. No, I, I, Alex, I think there's a serious point here that that that's why that slogan is is good because it's like if everybody had a Ferrari, everybody had a great would have a great car, and it would cease to be a Ferrari. It would just be a car, which is very good. And you move on to the next thing. And it's related to the future because um, I think all of us here on the podcast are fans, big fans even, of the show Westworld. And uh, we all probably, I think, probably agree, I'm guessing, that we see it as another example of the so-called golden age of TV. But an article that I think we all read in Current Affairs this week argues that TV has become respectable without actually getting that much better and tries to skewer the notion of the golden age of TV. So the author, Matt Chrisman, who I think is on some sort of podcast, but I don't listen to any other podcast than this one, so I wouldn't know. Um, There's four contentions. One, that when people say TV is better than film, they aren't comparing like for like. Two, that prestige TV has become samey, that these shows and here I'm quoting, rely on an assortment of genre tropes and the template laid by those pioneering programs. Mostly crime, mostly male, mostly extravagantly unlikable anti-heroes whose sheer awfulness makes us feel better about our own more mundane foibles. The third contention is that its appeal, the appeal of prestige TV, is actually based on our atomization and the fragmented media landscape so that it's one of the few collective viewing experiences we still have that you can discuss over the proverbial water cooler uh, at the office the next day. And his fourth point, which is one which is just fucking bullshit, if I'm honest, is that Westworld is well overrated. Um, so, guys, what we, do we, we think? We can come to this fourth point. We'll come to this fourth point. Let's just take on the TV questions. What, what do we think about the first point, that TV actually isn't better than film nowadays? George. Well, yeah, I think it's a good challenge because it's definitely, I think the article outlines the ways in which um, TV has become massively more respectable culturally in the last 10 years, 15 years, perhaps. Um, and now it's it's seen as the, you can watch a prestige TV um, box set and that is a way to to really, to imbibe some, some, some high quality culture. Um, and it's it's a difficult comparison. I think the there's there's clearly has been some some good films recently, but it's it, it's always the question with cultural criticism of comparing like for like. So if you compare the absolute best of TV in the past how many years with mediocre film, yeah, the you're going to have one the next Marvel that. remake, for example. Yeah, because um, I mean, and that's 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 a valid criticism that perhaps perhaps film has become more formulaic and more franchise driven. Yeah. So but, I think it's a difficult question to answer, but a good like, starting point. Yeah, and I, but I mean, I think if you're comparing, let's, you know, to take something like Game of Thrones, which is kind of middle brow, but it's it's well made. If you're comparing that kind of mass market, upper middle brow TV to the film equivalent, you'd say that TV's doing a pretty good job and at least holds its own and, and is possibly better, isn't it, Phil? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't think no, I mean, Phil no, likes he... anything. Phil doesn't world, like anything. So... <laughs> Phil is the resident grouch on this podcast for people who haven't listened before. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think the, um, I think, I mean, there's a way to be disparaging about it. So, I mean, the point is about the great TV shows is that they're genuinely, um, they are genuinely successful artistically. Um, I mean, not to say, you know, kind of without their limits and problems, but if you think about, say, like a high art um, European, you know, black and white Polish movie with subtitles, which is uh, only appealing to people who like, you know, kind of live in Dalston, um, believe in fully automated luxury hipsterism and watch Aaron Bastani videos. <laughs> and that that is the only thing that counts as art. And that anything that has some kind of universal mass appeal on, God forbid, a uh, satellite TV channel run by Rupert Murdoch, that that could possibly be in the, you know, the kind of same league of sophistication and nuance and character development. I mean, there's a snobbery, I think, to these kinds of arguments. I think the great kind of, you know, you can argue about which are the truly great TV shows, and I don't think Game of Thrones counts. No, I'm not, I, I was giving it as an example of, of properly middle brow. The truly great TV shows, I think, you know, are genuinely, um, are genuine kind of artistic achievements. Um, and obviously they'll, you know, they'll kind of reflect their age to the degree that they're about um, middle age, kind of middle age masculinity and crisis is one trope that's kind of repeated. I mean, you know, yeah. lots of critics have said this. That's repeated across many of the great kind of TV shows of our era. George, um, you, George, know, I mean, you, you, you probably agree, right, about this on the thematic aspect that they've become a little bit samey about them. George knows about George knows about middle age masculinity and crisis, so exactly. he can tell, tell us about that. Cool. Thanks for the intro, Phil. Um, no, I, I yeah, I think this is one of the the points at which um, this this Matt Chrisman article resonates to a certain extent have um anti-heroes quite a lot uh sociopaths there's an adam kotsko book on zero which talks about or, or kind of ponders the question why do we like um so if you look at the sopranos if you look at kirby enthusiasm if you look at breaking bad if you look at all of the the, the, the flag what's it called the flagship the tentpole the tentpole productions of prestige tv so the, the, the really the, the really kind of major ones they seem to feature like some bad central character who you're supposed to sympathize with i do think it is because it does become a little bit wearing and actually i think the three of us are in a a little bit of a different position because my uh my girlfriend sally i don't know if i'm a, am i allowed to say her name on the podcast what about all the female listeners who might now unsubscribe as a result well we'll have to just chance that because your so voice she, is I think, so enchanting that uh, I think you're just I, bringing them in in droves. Yeah, my, my Thames Estuary glottal stops. They the, the 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 girls love that. So, but she she quite rightly points out that a lot. You know, it's it's definitely targeted to a specific sort of viewer, and it is quite samey. It can be like, oh, you've got another dude in crisis, and he's sad and he's brooding, and then he's pretty violent, and that shows that he's really in pain. But actually, like, all right, fine. And it's yet, like with Westworld. And, and yet these are, yeah. Well, let's get on to that in a second because, and yet these are still remain very, very popular. And I mean, I think his criticism that it's really just our atomized selves uh, that draws to these TV shows because we can sit around and talk about them afterwards. I don't think that's too bad a thing because there's few uh, cultural sort of works that unite people and are able to have sort of common reference 
and are able to discuss and debate them and have the sort of moral debates that a lot of these TV shows encourage. At what point do you divest from Walter White, for example? I thought that was a fascinating question that Breaking Bad brought up, um, whether already from the first series, him selling, making and selling drugs was beyond the pale or whether you only break with him in season five and he turns out to be like an even bigger bastard than you thought. Um, but talking about moral debate encouraged by TV shows, I think Westworld has plenty of that. Uh, and I think this is where, personally, Matt Christman is completely wrong. Because for me, it takes up uh, cultural themes and jostles with philosophical ideas in a way that very little else does. Do we do we agree with that? I mean, does it have that level of, of depth uh, that a literary, great literary works might have? I, yeah, I, I, th- I, I have a particular opinion on this, which is almost that Westworld undermines the whole idea of of a, of a character that makes a moral decision because it's almost escaping from that in a large number of cases by saying we don't have human characters here who are put in human situations and who respond in various ways so you can't necessarily fully emotionally um invest in Thandie newton's character some have called her the kind of the robot lenin because she leads this spoiler alert this interaction but we, we won't get into that now i'm sure um, but it's difficult to sympathise emotionally with a with a robot character because you you can't appreciate their their humanity. So it's almost like it's 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 kind of undermining that in in, in a little bit, perhaps of a cheap way. But I'm sure I'm sure Phil has something to to add on this. Yeah. Well, Phil. just that I kind of well I agree and disagree with George. I agree, and you know, like it does undermine that kind of that um, image of uh, how we're supposed to respond to characters in these kinds of fictional scenarios. But it does it in a way that invites us to question it. So um, it invites us to think about how far that we're trapped in scenarios and repetitive loops um, that are controlled by other people, effectively, or controlled by systems that are even beyond our comprehension. So there's that great scene, um, and this isn't really a spoiler alert, but there's a great scene where Thandie Newton is given an iPad where, um, by her controllers where it lists all the various um, variations on things that she can say. Which So she has some flexibility within certain parameters as to what she can say and not say. And who And isn't that a great fantasy that if somebody could kind of come to your life and give you an iPad of your life and show you the limited range of options within certain set parameters of what you can say under certain conditions or what you can do or think or act, um, and that if you could see that, that then you could, as Thandie Newton does, kind of break the iPad and make your own choices. So I think George is right, but I think it's the success of the show that it invites you to um, think about your own freedom effectively. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I think the the depth that the show has it precisely hinges on its treatment of the question of what does it mean to be human, which even sounds a bit cliched saying it, but it does it in a way which has a profundity that is unequal because most other things kind of are like, well, you know, it's it's your family or, you know, you care for other people or you create lasting bonds or whatever. And it doesn't really uh, delve into any deeper philosophical questions. I think what really twisted me inside out about the show um, is that it's about ultimately about memory, right? And even though there's false memories implanted in these uh, in these robots, um, the tying together, the stitching together of memory creates suffering because you have a sense of a trajectory and of 
failed ambitions, perhaps. Uh, and that both gives its show its pathos because you can sort of identify with it, but also shows that the ability to construct a narrative and then deviate from your path dependency that these robots then do, that's what really uh, gets to the root of that fundamental question about freedom and about free will uh, that makes us human. And I thought that was fantastic. I also think it's it has an emotional depth, which hasn't really been sold in terms of either the trailers or the discussion about it. And for me, it kind of recalls Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is a fantastic film. And if we're comparing um, good cinema with good TV, that's up there. And so is Westworld. And I think they're in a way on par because they both deal with this question of memory and losing grasp of who one is and this fleeting sense of identity and the need to construct a sort of narrative. I think it's brilliant. And just a shout out to, to one of the main characters, Dolores, who, uh, whose, main, whose name means suffering. And I think that just captures it brilliantly. George, I do have a, 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 a dissenting view. I don't know if we have time for a dissenting view. Last, 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 or... last comment. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to make a point about um, Netflix. Netflix's Netflix's Master of None season two. I don't know whether you've seen it or not, but I guess what what my kind of reservation about Westworld to a certain extent is is that it's quite conventional in terms of form. It's still quite constrained by this ten episode first season. You know, it's got 50-something minutes with, you know, an hour with time for adverts. Um, so I guess my, my question is, you know, looking to the future and fully or partially automated luxury podcasting, communism, TV, is 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 streaming the future? Is is there some sense to which you can, like, because I think the thing about Westworld is it doesn't have radically different episodes. It's still quite, here's a chunk, here's a chunk, here's a chunk. So it's quite narratively um, to a certain extent, constrained. Whereas Mark of None, for its, pr its pros, pros and cons, it, it does vary a little bit, with, for example, with the length of the episode. Totally different show as well, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's, that's why, to kind of pick up on one of Matt Christman's points, that there is something interesting about having a, an episode which is almost twice as long as, as all the other episodes because there's something narratively that needs to be said very slowly. So I guess my question to the two of you is, so Westworld, great show, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't deny that, but is there something more that TV could offer, something a bit, a bit more varied, a bit broader, that you, you could have this kind of, because so, I think Master of None is, you have this one character or this one person, yeah, as Westworld Zari, season two. who's producing, as it, season two of, of Master of None, where he's producing this story about this one character, and it goes in a number of different ways, um, whereas Westworld is pretty much a, you know, a novel in TV form. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, can, can streaming do something a little bit better? Something I think that's right. Different? I think that's right. And I think that's something to, to look out for in the future. One last point. I think it is worth bearing in mind, of course, that novels themselves were serialized. And so this episodic nature of, of putting cliffhangers at the end to keep people tuning in to next time is something that was already existing in literature 150 years ago. Um, and maybe shouldn't be used as a means to disqualify TV as great art on that basis. But at the same time, it's true that uh, the technology and the streaming services available on offer now mean that maybe we could look forward to something uh, a little bit more varied, original and uh, innovative in terms of form. But I think we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately. But um, there'll be more robots and probing questions about whether Phil is really human uh, many more times on this podcast. But we'll have to leave it there. And 
uh, next time, uh, we're going to go back to our vexing, discombobulating present. This has been Alpha Bunga Bunga. Until next time, bye-bye.